0: Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found.
1: That project manager I could never seem to hire?
0: And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started
1: at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply.
0: Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms. And producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Before she was famous for Shark Tank or her New York real estate empire, Barbara Corcoran was one of 10 kids in a working-class New Jersey family. We watched my
1: father get fired and hired and fired and hired. He must have interviewed well. He would always come home and tell the story as to why he was fired and it always came down to the same bottom line. He would tell Mrs. Stein where
0: to take that job and shove it up with a sun don't shine. we go, yay, Dad! If nothing else, she learned how to take a risk. She started with a $1,000 loan from her then-boyfriend to go into the real estate business. Then they broke up, and the company broke up, And she built her half into the Corcoran Group, a real estate behemoth that she sold for $66 million in 2001. From there, she landed a spot co-hosting the hit reality TV show Shark Tank. I spoke with Corcoran about all that, plus how she stands out in a competitive field.
1: Her advice was pretty controversial. I wore bright-colored suits, short skirts, I had great legs. That was my best asset. I flaunted them, no, no doubt about it.
0: All that and more is coming up on this episode of Success How I Did It from Business Insider. I'm Alison Chantal. By the time she started her real estate brokerage firm at age 23, Barbara Corcoran had already had over 20 jobs.
1: I was a playground supervisor. I was an assistant lifeguard at the kiddie pool. I was um, a dispatcher for the Bergen Evening Record, delivering papers at night. You know, when you drop the bundles at night, you drive the truck. That was fun. And the most important thing that I learned the most from was waitressing. I had so many waitressing jobs. You had to keep everybody happy. It was a commission-based business. If you smile, made people happy, you got a bigger tip. You had to do five things at once. You had to stay organized. I learned a lot through waitressing.
0: And it seems like your mother was a particularly big influence on you. You mentioned she was really organized. She ran that house of 10 kids. Like yeah, She was a was drill sergeant. And so... What kind of lessons did you learn from her that you think have helped you in your career?
1: Well, I really did a a mimic of my mother in building my brokerage firm. I ran the firm exactly how my mother ran the house. We were super organized. We had a place for everything. And I can tell you, the minute you have more than one or two people working for you, efficiency has a lot to do with building a big company. On top of that, and probably the more important gift I got from my mom, was my mother was very inspirational. She would decide what your gift was as a child. She would name one thing. For me, she said I had a wonderful imagination. And then she would cast you in that role in the family unit, which was like a small town. And I am great at spotting the gift in people. I could interview someone who's trying for a bookkeeping job and totally convince them they'd be a star salesman, which doesn't fit into their resume, but it sure fit into them. So I think uh, those two things helped me build my business more than anything else.
0: And one thing that I think you've talked about, some on Shark Tank, is that you aren't drawn to the rich kids.
1: Well, I'm a little biased. It's terrible because I have two rich kids now. Let me tell you, if if you don't have anything, you have a huge advantage over the rich kid. I feel badly, I I shouldn't say this, but I think a poor kid has a better shot than a rich kid. So um, my biasness, and I shouldn't say, maybe biasness is the right word, toward the poor person uh, coming up is they're usually hungrier. They're more injured. They have more to prove. They haven't been uh, given a lot of privilege in their life to make their landing softer. So they've had uh, a few bumpy endings, and they're used to failure. And my God, what's more important in building a business than failing? Something I don't like rich kids. I love my children, they're rich kids now. But um, but I think they, with their good education and the, the coddling that even I've given them and their father's giving them, uh, uh,
0: makes kids a little softer in the belly. So how do you think about that You're raising them into it's a tough one.
1: The values I learned in my family was my mother and father loved us to death, would do anything for us. I'm that kind of a parent, of course, for my children. But what we also saw, without even trying, is what struggle was all about, and what teammanship was all about, and what ignoring the negatives and focusing on the positives is all about. With my children, I try to go out of my way to teach good values, and I think they're not spoiled kids. I hope to God, uh, you know, and all I know is I'm doing the best that I can. But um, where do they really learn those values? They, They stepped into my life, older in my Life when I had a lot of money, I had my first child at 46 and my second at 56, they stepped into an affluent lifestyle. And so, uh, where would they learn those struggle values? They don't see it among their friends, right? And so, what I do is I try to demonstrate that how hard I work for what I do. I'm working as hard now as I ever worked, okay? And I certainly am older than most people are working this hard, okay? My son, when he was uh, 17, he called me from the street and said, You know, mom, my shoes are pretty bad. My loafers for school. Do you mind if I buy a new pair of loafers? I said, well, that's so nice of you to call and ask. Of course, go ahead, buy those loafers. No problem. And I really hung up the phone thinking, wow, did I do a great job? Well, an hour later, he walks into the house with a shoe bag. They were $600 loafers. And he walked in and trotted by and goes, hi, mom. I see that bag. I wanted to kill him. I'm like, you didn't say you're Stopping with those loafers, you said loafers. Do you know how old I was before I had that brand loafer? And I started, he said, Mom, if you wanted me to have your values, you could have raised me in Edgewater with 10 kids rather than Park Avenue with a maid. And I thought, shit. It's kind of true. Like, how does he learn those values? You know, all the kids at school had expensive shoes on. And so I try to do my best by kindness to other people, always being even handed to everyone. I don't care who they are. I treat everybody the same. And of course, uh, not to think they're more important than the next guy. That is such a terrible trait in people. And it can happen very easily when people do well and make a lot of money too easily, I'm afraid.
0: So let's talk about um, you getting your start in real estate. Mm-hmm. Tell me who Ramon Simone
1: is. Oh, well, he was the dream date that walked into the diner, the Fort Lee Diner one night, and offered me a ride home. I hadn't had a boyfriend until then. I was twenty or 22 thereabouts. Within a year, he suggested I'd be great at real estate. I was working as a diner waitress. I quit that, uh, started working as a receptionist for Jafuni Brothers in New York, answering their phone, Jafuni Brothers, Jafuni Brothers. <laughs> and then a year later, he said, uh, I should start my own company. He'd give me $1,000 and he'd take 51% and give me 49%. And so that became the birth of Corcoran Simone Company. His name was Ramon Simone. I learned, later learned his real name was Ray Simon. He just put an E and an accent on each one. It looked fancy. And then seven years later, of course, he came home one night and, mar- and said he was going to marry my secretary. Uh, so that was such a shocker. Like I thought we were an item, but we weren't anymore. And so then uh, probably a year after that, I ended that company when I found the courage Again, what did I have to lose? Nothing much. Yeah. And start again as the Corcoran Group. And that was the beginning of my own firm.
0: If I think about starting a $1,000 business right now. Well, that was then. Right. That was. Right. But it's still, I think, with inflation, what, that's $5,000? Yeah, $5,000. Yeah. So how do you, what did you do with that money? You bought some ads in the New York Times, I think. Well, I plotted it out. Remember, I had an organized mother who made ends meet,
1: and I watched her operate, you know, for Christmas gifts and things like that. Um, what I simply did is I took the thousand dollars. I found out what an ad in the New York Times was. I forget what it was then, but let's say it was $12 for an ad, a three line ad. That was the minimum ad. Most people were doing five lines, but you get a three liner. Okay. If you didn't use bold type on the header. Okay. So, so then I got started that way, placing my first ad, but what I did, uh, because I had so little money, is very carefully place that first ad. And so I went back to Mr. Jafuni and asked him if I could have a, one of his listings to advertise. And he gave me the one next to 3L, the Superstore apartment, apartment, right, right next to J or something where the super was. I went into it, and it was an L-shaped living room, like every other apartment in New York, with a small bedroom in a doorman building. And I looked at and looked at and looked at the New York Times ads and saw there were hundreds and hundreds, one bedroom, 320 a month, one bedroom, 330 a month, doorman, one bedroom, 340 a month, and they all looked alike. And so I went back to him and said, could you build a half wall between the L and the living room? So I could advertise as a one-bedroom den. So that Sunday, my ad went in, even before the wall was built, one BR plus den, 340. It fit on one line, right margin to margin. And I probably got 80 phone calls that next morning. Because it was a gimmick. Uh, because why would you call on every other ad if you get a one-bedroom for 340 when you get a one-bedroom and den for 340 And you know what? Within the first two days, I had a check for $340, $340. So I always doled it out. And you know, even until I sold my business when I had a 1,000 people strong as sales agents, I still used the exact same methodology. And I was always running against the clock thinking, well, at least I have nine months now. I have 10 months now. And uh, carefully keep my overhead and spend every. Dollar like I was poor.
0: So Ramon does the stereotypical X thing. So he runs off. He's got 51% of the company. You have to split it in two then. I. I put the rules down. I said, this is how we're going to end the
1: business. You pick the first person. I'll take the second. We divided our receivables. We divided our cash, the little we had. And then I moved two floors above him in the same building. I went immediately to my landlord and asked for a new lease on another space. And it was a tough mark. He happily gave it to me. And it was cheaper than my other lease by a few hundred dollars a month. And I love getting out of that elevator with Ramon Simone and his new wife every day and saying. Sorry, I'm going up <laughs> stupid ego lifts that you do in life, right? But somehow that made a difference. I was below him. Psychologically it would not have been good.
0: <laughs> and and he from what it sounds like, he said to you on the way as you guys were closing the business and closing the relationship, you'll never survive without me, oh, which still oh. sounds like it burns a fire in you today. Oh my gosh. I, I don't it's
1: almost as heated as the day I heard it. When I walked out the door that Friday afternoon to start my new business on that Monday morning, um He said, you know, you'll never succeed without me. In his giving me those words, uh, a funny thing happened. It just hit me in the gut, and I felt that fever in my body, like, I'll be damned if you ever see me not succeed. I felt like I would kill not to let that thing happen. And you want to know, he gave me an insurance policy. Some people are motivated by insult. I happen to be one of them. I've succeeded on a lot of difficult situations by being insulted, even on things that I don't really want, just to prove somebody wrong. Isn't
0: that sicko? So he burns this fire, and you thrive off it. I thrive off it, thank God. Yeah, and and... Eventually, I mean, you build this company to a $66 million exit. What were some of the important steps you took to make sure that he wasn't right about you, that you were going to succeed? Well, to
1: stay in business is the number one charge. I mean, you know, in real estate brokerage, uh, cycles go up and down. So that was the first thing I learned how to do. How the hell do you stay in business in the bad troughs? And what you have to do is you have to be more creative. I mean, whenever something's wrong in any marketplace, any business, now I've learned with many years on Shark Tank, not just real estate, whenever something's wrong in business, there is some huge opportunity there. If only you have the foresight or the intelligence or the need to see it. And so I remember I got through uh, the, the closest I got to bankruptcy. I was literally writing the speech and making sure I had everybody's name to thank everybody for the Monday meeting. And bingo, as I'm writing it, I was thinking of Ramon Simone's word. And bingo, I think, Wait! I could sell those eighty-eight apartments that a, an insurance company owned, were, who didn't want an auction. I just popped in my head, and I went back and I priced them all alike. I Got the same dollar, but I priced one bedrooms, two bedrooms, studios all alike. I sold them for the same price, and for those eighty-eight sales, I went from owing three hundred. I remember exactly three hundred forty-eight thousand dollars is what I owed out at that time, and I came in with over a million two in commissions within a week. How did that happen? Bad times made it happen. I was desperate. And that's what popped the idea in my head. And that always happens. So surviving, the, the survival instinct of what could you come up with, what could you jiggle out uh, to get you through is, is such, it's probably the most important trait if you're going to build a business because one thing for sure is you'll have bad times. You can count on that one.
0: And what about things like, it sounds like you built like a strong corporate culture. Your retention rates were incredibly high. Mm-hmm. Nobody ever left. Yeah, um, we had a happy family is what we had. Well, I yeah. did what
1: my mother did. I adored my children. I would do anything for them. I would kill for them. And I nurtured them and I loved them and I tried to give them as much freedom as I could. I pushed them forward, got them to believing they could do a lot more than they were doing. And they did because people don't really know what they're capable of. And I made them love each other. I knew how to create teams where everybody got along and everybody respected the different uh, attributes that people have. And to forgive the ones that were bugging them, you know. And I learned how to get rid of complainers. Complain in my company, I couldn't wait till Friday to get get you out because okay? I felt like they were attacking my young. And then what I was particularly adept at was m- what I learned from my dad, how to have fun. My father knew how to have more fun with our family than anyone in town even though we had no money to do it. So what I learned in my corporate culture, if you want to call it, I wouldn't call it a culture, it was just a gathering of sorts, is I learned to make sure everybody was having fun. We had bizarre, probably today maybe illegal type parties. I don't even know the way I had people dress for them and all. But we had parties galore. We had uh, spontaneous events. We, we we, all I did was think of, what can we do? That's fun. And when you get people laughing their asses off and drinking too much and dressing in things that they've never dressed in before, guess what happens? You wind up with a creative company. So we wound up being the creative hothouse as well. But we never had anybody leave, except, of course, the people that exited quietly on a Friday. But why? I'm selling. But why? My sales are good. You just don't fit in here, baby. <laughs> Out of, you know, Yeah, I think
0: you said it well with the complainers. I mean, if you have someone who's toxic in your work environment, they can infect all the people around it.
1: One negative person will take the energy out of 15 great people quietly. That's why I think of complainers as thieves in the night. They don't work up front. They're quietly zapping you, you know.
0: So you had to make it. In a industry that was traditionally owned by men, mm-hmm. the salespeople were often women. The owners, the business owners, were a lot of men. Um, how did you do that? And I know that you've talked about some some tactics you've used. Um, I think you've talked about sometimes playing the dumb blonde card. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's always useful.
1: Or the dumb anything card. Yeah, people underestimate you. Yeah.
0: Or sometimes like even the
1: sex appeal card. Of course, I wore flashy. I wore bright colored suits, short skirts, I had great legs. That was my best asset. I flaunted them. No, no doubt about it.
0: So do you think that would fly today if you were building a startup? Because like now we've got to deal with things like Harvey Weinstein and Donald Trump even. Um, and there's this whole uh, focus on women and then sexual harassment by powerful men. I mean, do you, would you advise that same sort of strategy today? Of course. Today?
1: You know, all that is is marketing, good marketing. Uh, what is good marketing on any level, whether it be individual or for a, or a corporate campaign? Marketing is a point of difference. How do you stand apart from the pack? Who wants to be like the rest of the pack? You don't get noticed. You could spend all the money in the world on it. You won't get noticed, all Right. So any opportunity you have to stand apart from the pack. Um, which starts with you yourself. You know, you're you're. If you're owning a company, you're the leader of the company. You're a billboard, okay? As are your managers, okay? So yeah, you have to use whatever you have, and that happens to be what I was particularly adept at marketing. I knew how to work angles and market. So sure, I would do the same today. The great advantage I had and still have, because I travel mostly in a man's world, still, uh, is just by being a woman, I stand apart from the pack. I not never saw there's a liability. I saw that as an advantage. Uh, Like, look, I'm the only girl in the room. Well, everybody's going to, they might not remember my name, but they'll say the girl in the room where they wouldn't say one of the 50 boys in the room, right? So no, I think you just have to uh, play up whatever you can to get positive attention uh, because attention brings business. I got very good at uh, creating noise in the press, story ideas uh, from the what's happening in the market, to teaching dogs how to shake hands in Central Park so we could get them through the co-op boards, stupid stuff like that, or smudging an apartment rang bells and, and burned scents because the apartment couldn't sell and getting the New York Post and the New York Times there to watch it. All that nonsense stuff. Why? Because our name was always in the paper.
0: But for one thing, can you do you think that you can get ahead just by brains instead of beauty now as a woman?
1: I don't think anyone uh, listen, here, think about uh, what a consumer has. They have ears, they have a mouth, they have a nose, and they have eyes. So you're asking, can you get ahead, can you get ahead uh, of trying to ignore the eyes of the consumer? No, The eyes of the boss or the colleague. No. It's a you're in a visual world. No, you have to use everything. You have to be well-spoken, communicate clearly so people aren't trying to figure out what the hell you're saying. Uh, You have to look good. You have to look the part. You even have to smell good. You can't go into work smelling badly. You're not going to get ahead on that one, right? So you got to use you got all your barrels going. You know, you just have to use every advantage you can. And lucky for you, you're (laughs) good-looking. Now, I ask you, do you think that would be an advantage here, that you look exactly like the girl next door?
0: I've definitely found myself underestimated uh-huh. because of how I look. So, yeah, no, I, I understand the instinct, um, but I was curious for your perspective. So thank you. So I know that you started your family after you had a hugely successful career. Yes. And I read that you did IVF.
1: Yes, seven times, actually. Yeah. Yes. Thank God I had the money. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. And a lot of people don't.
0: Exactly. And I've heard people say now that they think that IVF will actually be as empowering for women who are in their careers as birth control and things like that. More empowering. Yeah, because it basically makes it so that you could have kids later and essentially become in like charge. a guy. Right. So. You know,
1: I know a lot of uh, young women uh two generations down, early 30s, serious about their career who are um producing eggs and banking them. I mean, that would have sounded absurd years ago. Uh but I'm all for it, you know. I just think uh, anything that that you can uh, be in charge of yourself about uh, is always good for everybody, not just you. The future kids you will or won't have, your colleagues, the people you associate with. I just am so much a believer in not giving away your power to the universe. See where it will land. You know, thank God uh, that I was able to take control back when I couldn't get pregnant and have children. I did it with the help of my baby sister, honestly. In the end, she produced the fertile eggs. Well, five of my sisters volunteered, but I took my youngest the one who was in best shape with the best grades i'm like okay this is an opportunity for to create the best baby <laughs> and so uh thank god but then also i didn't want to go back there again but when i more children i adopted a child i mean no i'm all for anything that is going to put the power uh in anyone's hand man woman child i mean so you can make your own life as you wish it to be
0: And did you find that it was helpful to establish yourself to rise to the top of your career before having a family?
1: Helpful? It had to play out that way. If I had had my brokerage business and had kids on the side, I would have certainly made a good living as a real estate salesman and perhaps had a smaller firm. But I would have put my kids first. There's no, and, and it's instinctive, really. Uh, you're you, When you're having children and a job, in the end, the children feel more important than they are. Well, that's my opinion. So I could have never built the Corcoran Group if I had had children early. Never. It was meant to be. I kind of lived life like a free man, like a bachelor. I did whatever I wanted. I could put myself at risk. I think that I lived life kind of in reverse. I kind of like went all out on building uh, my career. And then when that chapter was when I wanted to wind down, I went all out. On uh, building a family. But of course, little did I know that I would be all out on both in short order. <laughs> yeah.
0: That's great. Well, I'm glad it all worked out for you. So let's talk about your
1: Shark Tank days. My offer is $75,000 for
0: 40%. And if you go down to 37%, I'd be happy to take your deal. Uh... No. You were obviously a hugely successful businesswoman business person. Now you are a hugely successful investor in tons of startups and nine years of Shark Tank. It's yeah, amazing. it's a long time. Congrats. Oh, it's great. I can't believe it's been
1: nine years. It feels like four, but that's what happens when you're having a good time, exactly. right? Exactly. So at first you didn't get the job, right? Well, actually I was offered the job and I took the job and signed the contract and sent it back without even reading it. That's how excited I was about getting my first gig, you know, and after all, I had never been to Hollywood. I'm going to Hollywood. You had never like, been to Hollywood? Never. I had never been to California, but I I think I told everyone I knew, I'm going to Hollywood, I'm going to Hollywood. Egg on my face, of course. They call and say they've changed their mind. They've invited another woman uh, for the one female seat. I just couldn't believe it. It was like Ramon Simone all over again. <laughs> it really felt like that. Like, how could that be? How could that be? I At least I had the presence to get angry, right, and sit down and write a very potent uh, text to Mark Burnett, who owned the studio. And I had the people sense to make his assistant Uh, promised me over the phone that if I wrote it, she'd print it out and walk it over to him because I figured he wasn't reading his own emails. And I think I opened it with, I should have it memorized, it's on my wall in my office because it's one of my proudest accomplishments (laughs) because it made a nine-year difference in my life. Think about, uh, just for writing an email that took about eight minutes, okay? But it was really more than that. I was standing up for myself. That's why I earned it, I feel, in hindsight now. But anyway, the first (laughs) line, I think I said, "Uh, Mark, I understand you've asked another girl to dance instead of me. (laughs) And I appreciate you uh, keeping me as a fallback. How insulting. Who wants to be a fallback? But anyway, I said, but all of the best things have happened in in my life on the heels of failure, starting with Sister Stella Marie, who told me I'd always be stupid because I couldn't learn to read or write. I'm not stupid. And I said, I hope you invite both women to compete for the seat. And I expect to be on that plane on Thursday. And the next day I got the call, okay, we'll let you compete for the seat. (laughs) Thank God. But uh, the importance of standing up for yourself, uh, I had learned that over and over again. Because even if it doesn't work, you'd think if you really tried at something and you didn't get it that you would feel embarrassed. But I never found that to be the case. I felt self-pride that I at least tried. And then, of course, with so many tries, you wind up getting a few yeses along the way. And this happened to be one of those yeses.
0: And as you said, sending one email that took eight minutes changed nine years of your life. Yeah but it was an act of courage, you see, or an act of persistence or obstinance
1: (laughs) or craziness. Call it what you want, but it was a very little effort. Uh, But it was born out of a lot of years of experience of learning to persist and getting back up, you see. Or I probably would have rolled over maybe and cried, but I was near tears, honestly, because I couldn't imagine why something I envisioned, I also already had bought two new suits to sign autographs. I thought I was going to be like a Hollywood star. I think I got the movies mixed up with reality TV somewhere we're there. But um, but I just couldn't imagine that what I had envisioned wasn't going to come true. Because anytime I dreamt of anything from the first day thinking of dreaming about being the queen of New York real estate, I saw it in my mind as clear as it happened 25 years later. So I saw everything so clearly. And I thought, how could that be? I saw this clearly. How could this be? And I think it was that disbelief that got me to sit right down and write that damn email.
0: (laughs) That's amazing. Well, congrats. Huge win. So I was reading uh, actually in the Sony leaks, there was an email from Mark Cuban Uh about salary negotiations with Shark Tank. Mm -hmm. I mean, it feels like he thinks he's irreplaceable. I mean, he was given a think, $30,000 an episode for season five. He was
1: insulted. He
0: was very insulted. And he actually wrote to the producers and said, start taking me out of the promos now. Yeah. Do you have that same tactic when negotiating something like a salary for the show?
1: No, you know, I'm not as, uh, I'm more clever than I am smart. Actually, I'm a little foxy. Uh, What I did is found out who Mark's attorney was a couple of years ago because he's the biggest man on campus, if you think about it. He's the only billionaire on set. Right away, that qualifies him as the biggest guy on campus, in my opinion. Okay, We're all millionaires, measly millionaires. He's a billionaire. That's a big difference. But uh, what I did immediately is find out who his attorney was and hired the same woman. She's about six foot two. Intimidating. Smart as could be. Scary when she walks into the room. So she negotiates both our contracts. I mean, that's my sneaky way of, of like being tough. Like let me let me grab on to Who's got a tough person and go for the ride?
0: <laughs> Smart. It's great. It works. Yeah. So, what is a day like on set for you? Talk about um, when you're filming the show. Mm-hmm. What time do you wake up? How do you get ready?
1: We spend about an hour in makeup and hair, maybe an hour and a half. Then it's pressure, pressure, pressure. Get on the set. We shoot from. We start usually at eight in the morning and we finish at maybe seven at night. So we have generally 11 hour days. I actually had to think about that. They don't feel that long because they click by. We sit on the set and we're listening, hearing pitch after pitch after pitch. We know nothing about the pitch. Within two minutes, I know who I'm definitely out on without even knowing a thing about their business, okay? okay? Because they just fall apart. You can see them falling apart in front of the big cameras in their faces. And so the day goes on and on and on. We're literally exhausted. The lunch is like I think we have 20 minutes. We're back in makeup and hair, and then we're back on the set. It's a marathon. The day goes on and on and on. It's a lot of fun. It's very competitive. You're spending your real money, which adds a layer of uh, pressure to you because you really don't want to lose your money, you know, and you're always trying to think. I think the hardest thing, I think Mark had said it last time. I wholeheartedly agree. He said the hardest part of Shark Tank is coming up with a new reason for going out. (laughs) because a lot of times basically when well, my attitude in my head is you know what I don't like you I'm out but you can't say that you got to go you know about those projections <laughs>
0: That's true. Yeah. I guess you have to get creative by saying no all the time. I mean, there's a
1: lot of outs in a season of Shark Tank. You got to
0: make them sound all different. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, Well, it sounds like a long day, but a fun one. Did they tell you, like, what kind of personality do they want you to have? Like, did they say, like, Kevin, we want you to be the, like, Simon Cowell of the show or anything? Kevin picked that that one
1: for himself. (laughs) Mark picked the billionaire for himself. Okay. Big, tough billionaire. Lori picked the merchandise merchandise. Person, smartest one on the set that could sell anything. But um, we're not told what to be. Uh, you know, for, it's interesting for the first four or five seasons of Shark Tank, our producers would always meet with us before the season. We'd like to see more of this, less of this, more of this, less of this. And it used to make me so neurotic. And then one day, uh, Mark Burnett, I think it was season three, when we knew we were starting to have a hit on our hands, invited us all to his beautiful Malibu home for dinner on the cliff, just like a Hollywood set. Anyway, we get over there, and he says, here's my advice. Ignore what everybody says and be yourself. And my shoulders went down. From It was so much better to just have to be yourself. And that was great advice. And he's the smartest guy in that whole industry. So I listened to him.
0: You said when you got out to Hollywood for the first time, you thought you were going to be movie star famous. And I would argue that you are pretty much there. Like, I think you're a household name at this point. Everyone knows you as Barbara Corcoran, business person and shark. Um, What's it like to be famous? Is there good? Is there bad?
1: Um, Well, fortunately for me, I love people. So I'll talk to anyone and really enjoy the conversation, not pretend to enjoy it, because I find people eternally curious, odd, interesting in every way, okay? And so with having people constantly come up and talking to you like they know you, the minute they introduce themselves like you've been pals, so it can intrude on your personal life. So I don't go out for restaurant dinners anymore, period. It's it's work, because I just have to really pose for selfies, right? Um, I don't do a lot of things. I don't do do parties anymore, because I almost feel like a paid uh, entertainer. I don't do a lot of stuff anymore, but it's all right with me, because I'm really a whole body want to be cooking myself I want to be home with my kids and my close friends and family so it
0: works out yeah so that's what it's like so just um, a final question to wrap this up um, bringing it back to the entrepreneurs Um, you've made a lot of investments and you've made a lot of impacts on their businesses and by now you've seen so many people what um, what is your advice for people that want to start their own thing to get to get going and What is the trait that you see the most in the people who are successful? I'll do it in reverse.
1: The successful trait is identical in every one of my most successful businesses. Uh, They're street smart. And when they're slammed, uh, they don't feel sorry for themselves. That's it. I've talked to more entrepreneurs after I've invested within the first uh, maybe eight, nine months after the shine of Shark Tank is gone, after the rush of sales is behind them, where something goes wrong. And then I'm on the phone or on a Skype call with them and I hear them blaming it on someone else. Like the shipment never came in. The guy didn't do the such and such right. It's another version of Oprah me. The minute I hear that, I go right to my wall where I have all my entrepreneurs in frames, beautifully matted, and I hang their picture upside down. And why do I do that? Just to remind myself that I shouldn't spend any time with that person, because they're never going to succeed. Every one of my successful businesses are run by entrepreneurs who are so good at taking a hit and getting back up. They just don't feel sorry for themselves. That's a trait.
0: Great. Well, Barbara, thank you so much. It's been really, really inspiring and just awesome to listen to. You're very easy to talk to with those starry eyes, you have. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Success How I Did It. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You'll find interviews there with people like PayPal CEO Dan Shulman and the former CIA director John Brennan. And please leave us a review. It really helps new listeners find the show. I'm Allison Chantel. We'll be back next week with more success.